I'll be reading from the book of Judges, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite uh, to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Chad. I uh, asked Chad to consider reading all four chapters in Hebrew this morning. He said, nah, just the first five verses in English. So uh, a couple things before we get started. Uh, Cody mentioned Lent, and uh, as our spiritual leader, I met with Cody and we prayed, and he and I have decided to give up percussion for Lent, so there's no drummer. So, <clears throat> okay, no. All right, so... Um, a uh, couple of other things that I want to mention. First of all, I want to mention uh, our bulletin. So some of you have been watching the progression of our bulletin lately. We used to have this nice folded bulletin writing everywhere, and then we went to the, the, the one uh, little eight and a half by five, and, um, and we used to have writing on the back. It said sermon notes and then a bunch of lines, and now we don't even have that, okay? So our operations manager, Stephanie Shoemate, has been on a rampage lately to save money prior to us moving into our new property. So uh, one of the things that she has attacked and dissected is the bulletin. And I just want to tell you, this is pretty amazing to me. Um, those of you that take sermon notes, you're like, hey, where'd my lines go? Let me tell you something. These lines <clears throat> are going to save us about $75 a week by not putting them on there. So... You note-takers, we're glad you're here, but suck it up and just write straight, okay? So um, you're, that's your contribution to the building fund, all right? So uh, she's doing this in all areas, so just I, I'm really glad that she's working on all that stuff. One other thing, we are finishing Judges next week. If you've read ahead, you know what's coming. These last five chapters next week, especially the last three chapters, some uh, literature scholars have said that not only these last three chapters in Judges are they the darkest chapters in the Bible, but they are the darkest story told in all of ancient literature. It's tough stuff. And so uh, Jackie and I have two children. Um, they're 19 and 23 now, two daughters. Um, we always brought them into church. We, from the very beginning, we, we wanted them to hear the Word of God preached and the gospel proclaimed from the very beginning we thought that was important in shaping them. On the other hand, I recognize that some of you also do that same thing. You might just want to read ahead and be forewarned that this could be a little bit shocking even for adults who watch R-rated movies, okay? So you may want to just look at that and think about it before you come in because we believe in preaching the whole counsel of God's word and, and we're not going to hold anything back. But it's some, and, and even today's a little bit goofy and risque, let me tell you. So this whole judges thing, but especially these last uh, three chapters are going to be tough. So there's our warning uh, for next week. I will also mention that uh, suddenly it came to me a couple of weeks ago how good God is. I mean, it's Valentine's Day and we're going to talk about Samson and Delilah. I mean, just, could life get better than this? I submit that it cannot. I mean, it's, it's just, I don't, even, I don't even know if Luke did that on purpose. Samson's story is four chapters. So again, this is just going to be I'm going to give as much detail as I can, but mostly it's a flyover. And again, Samson's a mess, and a lot of the stories in here are a mess. You're just going to kind of be, you're going to feel pounded over and over and over by like, what are these people thinking? This is just goofy. Um, one of the things that I think is helpful to remember is the next book in the Bible is the book of Ruth. And Ruth is one of the most redemptive and wonderful books you're ever going to read in the Bible. And what's interesting about the book of Ruth and the story of Ruth and Boaz and, and Naomi is that um, this takes place during the time of the judges. So even during the time of judges, there's this wonderful, remarkable story of redemption and Ruth. It's much shorter than Judges too. I would encourage you to read that along with Judges. So these four chapters, uh, here's the big idea that we're going with today. God calls you and me to preparation and obedience and to seek God's character. 
He does not call us to results because the results are up to God. We need to remember that. We're very results-oriented. We want to chase down results. We think God is calling us to results, and we live our life that way. But in the reality, God is always calling us to obedience to him and to preparation for what he's got for us and to seek his character as part of that um, preparation. Uh, there's another big idea that I toyed with. I thought I'd go ahead and tell you that this could also be the big idea today, so here it is. If God can use Samson, then there is certainly hope for you and me because this guy was an absolute mess. Uh, he doesn't show any redemptive qualities until the end when he finally, in humility and submission, seeks God. It's a little unconventional also today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in chapter 14. Chad read from 13, the birth... Uh, the beginning of the birth narrative of Samson. We'll get there at the end, but I think that the birth narrative is best told at the end of this story. So we're going to tell the stories of Samson first, chapters 14 through 16, and I'll actually read much of chapter 16, the story of Samson and Delilah, and then we'll come back to chapter 13. Samson is the last of the judges that is specifically singled out and mentioned in the book of Judges. Next week we don't have, we just have some couple of weird random stories and I want to mention two things before we dive in. Number one, uh, this is the first time that this particular piece of the pattern is missing. We've talked a lot uh, in these uh, weeks on Judges uh, about this pattern that the, the people of God, the Israelites, are living in, how um, things are fine, and then they uh, whore after the idols, and then, and then they're oppressed, and then they cry out to God, and he sends a deliverer. This is the first time that that crying out by the people of God is missing. They never bother to cry out to God. Yet God does send this deliverers. So the Israelites were in subjugation to the Philistines. Chad read it for 40 years because they had done evil, and yet they don't, they don't even bother to cry out for, for God's help this time. So Samson becomes the judge that no one except God wants. God is the only one who decides that, that Samson ought to be used. And the truth is, the Israelites at this time in their history had become completely indifferent to being oppressed. Let, let that just hang there for a minute. They're oppressed, and they had become indifferent to it. They had gotten used to it. I would argue they even liked it. They were fine with it. They'd gotten used to not being God's people. They decided that living under curse rather than under blessing was just fine with them. How miserable do you have to be to say, I'd rather live under curse than under the blessing of God? And I know some of you would argue, but I've, I've lived with God and it's hard with God. Yeah, that's the point. Life is hard because we live in the midst of a fallen and corrupt and sinful world. If you don't have God, then you've got nothing and you've got no hope at all. It's going to be hard with God, but God tells us that his presence is what helps us to get through these things. You know, James says, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds because the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. He's, he's acknowledging life is hard, but you've got God with you. But, but these people have said, we don't even want that. We just want to live under curse and have absolutely no hope. In fact, listen to how the leaders in Israel react during one of Samson's encounters where he's trying to defeat the Philistines, where he's trying to help his nation. He's trying to help God's people. Listen to this from chapter 15. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah went up to the Philistines and they said, hey, why have you come up against us? We've been good little oppressed people. And the Philistines said, we have come up to bind Samson and to do to him as he has done to us. Then the men of Judah, they, they didn't even ask any questions. The men of Judah then went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom where Samson was staying and hiding out. And they said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? They're saying to their kinsmen, their deliverer, their judge that God has appointed, they're saying, uh, we don't want you doing your job. We like it better living under the oppressive rule of the Philistines. So they say to him, what have you done to us? And Samson said to them, as they have done, so I have done to them. And the leaders of Judah said to Samson, <clears throat> we've come down to bind you, Samson, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said, please do not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, no, we're only going to bind you and give them into your hands. We will surely not kill you. Well, gee, thank you so much, my kinsmen, my compatriots. That's very nice of you. And that's what they did. They bind him and they hand him over to the Philistines. 
Have you ever gotten so comfortable with sin and curse and oppression that you will bind, that you'll even sell out someone who's trying to help you? You ever been in that place? It's a dark place to be. Somebody's coming trying to speak truth into your life, trying to help you, trying to love you, and you sell them out. Even though they're right, and you're going down a hole that you don't want to be going down. Here's the second thing. Samson was a Nazarite. So we got, what is that? Is that a tribe of Israel? No, it's not. According to Numbers, which is back earlier in the Old Testament, it's part of the Pentateuch. According to Numbers, a Nazarite is a person who takes a vow to be set apart for a time for God. The Hebrew word nazir means to be set apart. So he's a Nazarite. And the vow includes three things. You can't drink wine or any other fermentation. There's no touching dead things for any reason, so you can't have any barbecue or anything. And there's no cutting of your hair. So essentially your life is over for 60 days or 40 days or whatever it is. Now, it's really important to understand this about the Nazarite vow. These things that you vow to do do not make you holy. There's no power in this vow. There's no power in this morality, if you want to look at it that way. They were merely marks of the holiness, the set-apartness, that God has already given to you through his grace, love, and mercy. So it's like baptism. We baptize people up here quite often. We, we dunk them, and, and we say to all the time, baptism is not what saves you, but rather it is an outer mark of the inward reality of what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. So it's an outer mark of this set-apartness that they have. But there's, there's no power to live a moral life in this vow in and of itself. But it does remind you that you're set apart for God. The catch for Samson, though, is that he never took the vow. This is a vow that somebody is supposed to decide on their own to take and for a short period of time, 40 days, 60 days, whatever it is. Instead, his parents took the vow for him. So the vow that he never had a part in taking becomes a vow that is actually a burden to him later on in life, as we will see. And this is what scholars believe led Samson to be the most sinful judge in the book of Judges, the one that if you're kind of rating on a sinometer, he would probably tip the scales. And yet he's still a saint because at the very end, he does come back to God in humble submission. At the very, very end, just the last few minutes of his life, he does make this, this move where he humbly and uh, faithfully submits to God. But for the rest of his life, this guy is a despicable uh, sinner. And yet in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, he's part of the Hall of Fame of Faith. He's, he's considered a saint. And so we have to think about this. This is really weird. God empowers and uses Samson, and yet he's clearly somebody who lives by his flesh and his eyes and not by faith and spirit, uh, faith in the, in the spirit of, of God until the very end. And I'll tell you, the story of Samson is he's a player. It's just like one woman after another. And, and the way he, the, his criteria for how he wants women to be in his life, it, it's very simple. If she's a delight to his eyes, boom, then she gets to be a part of his wonderful life. Okay, and, and just, I'll tell you, I, I read that and I look back to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall and the triad of temptation. That, that the serpent used on the woman and on her husband. The fruit was good to eat. It appealed to their flesh, their pleasure. It was, delight, it was a delight to their eyes. It was really pretty. And it was desired to, to give them pride, to be, give them a feeling of superiority over others. That's the triad of temptation, our flesh, our eyes, and pride. And, and Samson's greatest downfall is his eyes secondarily would probably be his flesh. And it goes without saying that the guy was just filled with, with pride. And so let's get into the stories. Chapter 14, we'll start there. Just read the first three verses to kind of set the stage. Samson went down to Timnah. Timnah's a part of the Philistine nation. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came back up and he told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his, father, but his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of your people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his mother, his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. They're saying there's, a, there's hundreds of thousands of Israel women here, and you can't find one in that you have to go down and take one from the Philistines who don't, Share in our, all of this stuff, you have to go there. 
He says, no, she's right in my eyes. He's become a picture of the entire nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has also walked away from God for what is right in their eyes. It's the, it's the big idea of the entire book of Judges. In those days, there was no king. There was no recognition of God as king. And so everyone in Israel did what was right in their own eyes. And when God is forgotten, what you and I tend to do is what's right in our own eyes. And doesn't that just lead to a mess? It does. And so, of course, the parents, you can see that they have the right instinct Come on, Samson, go and look among our people. They have the right instinct, but against every good instinct that they have, they say, okay, Samson, and they go and they get him the girl. So Samson's a slave to his eyes. He's a slave to his flesh. He's also disrespectful to his parents. You see that exchange. And by the way, he's a grown, big old man, and yet he's still a child. He can't even go pick up a girl for himself. He's got to get his daddy to go and do this. I mean, this is just a sad, sad story. I want to stop here and make two points, though. This is, I think this is important. Number one, let me just make a quick point about parenting. I'm a parent. I can speak into this. I've read the Bible. I know a couple things about this, okay? Um, I understand as a parent that there's this tremendous tension that we all feel between doing anything for your child, Right? Those of you who are parents, you know what that feels like. You'll do anything. You'll sacrifice. You'll do anything for your child. And the tension between that and doing what is right for your child, what's right. What we struggle with as parents is that very often there's a big difference between those two things. We have a lot of parents running around these last 20 or 30 years who see absolutely no difference between those two things. And that's where we get into trouble. There's a big difference between those two things very often. And so I would suggest to you this, just as your pastor, I would counsel you on this. If you're somebody who never says no to your children, say no occasionally. Say no occasionally. And I make you two promises, and you can come and call me out on these promises. Here's promise number one. Your child will survive you saying no. They will, especially if it's the first time, they will stamp and scream and make your life miserable. But they will survive. But I don't want to hurt their spirit. I don't want to hurt. No, 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 no. You're not going to hurt their spirit. In fact, studies out of Stanford University clearly say that even though children are saying, gimme, 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 say yes, say yes, say yes, in reality, children are desperate for boundaries. They won't tell you that, but they want boundaries. They want discipline. They want you to be their parent and not their friend. They will survive. Here's promise number two. You will be liberated. Can I get an amen? <laughs> you will. You'll be liberated. You'll be like, after it's over, you're going to go, okay, that worked. That worked. And then here's, here's the best part of this that I found as a parent. When you do say yes, it means so much more. It means so much more. And there's where the relationship really starts to kick in. So here's what will happen. If you always give in to your child, you could produce a Samson. And here's why. A lot, I've heard this from a lot of parents. Well, they, they, they just have this appetite, and I just want to feed their appetite. If I feed their appetite, then it will go away. No. You feed their desires and their appetite. Their desires and their appetite just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That's a fact. And by the way, that's also true of adults. Amen? That's the book of Ecclesiastes. Those who make a lot of money lust for more money. That's just the way we're wired. Tom Schrader once preached a, a, a great sermon called Put a Lid on Your Dreams, and essentially this is what it was about. Sometimes you have to say no to yourself too. It, it'll help you. It'll liberate you to be able to do that. And then to be a model for that, don't turn your kids into a Samson. And second of all, I want to use this as an opportunity to talk to people who are interested in romance. So that means I'm going to talk to the vast majority of single people here and to maybe a few of the married people here. Some of you got that. That's good. Okay, I appreciate that. Uh, here you go. Lust and appearance stink as a rubric for finding romance. Lust and appearance stink as a rubric for finding romance. If you're, 
If your checklist is just, does he or she look good? If that's your checklist, you're headed for deception, conflict, and maybe even violence. Here's the problem that I found. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. And we've been doing the marriage class during the week lately. We're in week five this week. So some of you have been coming to the marriage class. This will be repetitive for you. But the rest of you, I think, could benefit from hearing this. Uh, Married people have found, now it's too late, but most single people looking for romance, okay, most single people, what they're doing, what they're looking for is they're looking for a finished product. They have their little checklist of everything they need, tall enough, smart enough, money enough, all these things, okay. They have this little check. By the way, I would, the cynical side of me, but I think there's truth in this, that's what social media profiles are all about. Look at my checklist. And let me see your checklist, and let's see if we can merge our checklists. You've got these standards, okay? All right, that's, that's even e-harmony and all that stuff. Oh, find your soulmate. Make me sick, okay? <laughs> anyway, you're looking for this finished product, okay? When the gospel, the Bible, offers us reality and says, no, 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 no. There is no such thing as a finished product. What you're looking for is a work in progress. That's how you and I are described in the Bible, We are always described as a work in progress. We are not holy. That's why we are seeking holiness with God. Here's When a a man and a woman get married, the purpose of that is for them to uh, become one flesh, as the scripture says, and then together in partnership seek the holiness of God. That's their primary purpose. And then in the midst of seeking the holiness of God, they are to assist each other as spouses in in helping God to conform their spouse to the image of God. Uh, that he has for them, to the calling that he has for them, which Paul clearly tells us in Romans chapter 8 is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what we do in marriage. That's the biblical understanding of marriage. You're not marrying a finished product. You're marrying a work in process. In fact, the only finished product who ever walked this earth is Jesus himself. And then he went to the cross and he said, here is where it's finished. This is where it's finished. We're not finished products. Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 1, he says, And this one thing I am certain of, that he who began a good work in you will complete it when? On the day of Christ Jesus, not before. Not at your wedding ceremony. You haven't been completed. And I'll tell you, I I do lots and lots of weddings. Demographically, we have a very young congregation. I love doing it, but I'll tell you, every time I'm standing up there officiating a wedding, I know I'm I'm, I'm looking at two finished products who, once they get married, they're going to discover I don't really know who I married. I married a stranger. You're going to really get to know who you married after the ceremony. And you're going to find out, guess what? That finished product is going to deteriorate. It's going to, your finished product is going to deteriorate. Um, literally, Paul says, our outer self is wasting away. Okay? But also your finished product is going to deteriorate this way. You're going to get in that closed quarters of living with that person and you're going to start to learn things about them that you didn't know prior to getting married. And you're going to find out that your finished product isn't so finished after all. And when that happens, the disappointment and the frustration sets in and then culture starts telling you, you deserve to get out of this relationship and go find a real finished product. There ain't no such thing out there. You need to learn how to love the stranger that you married. And single people, you need to learn how to look for a finished product. I'm sorry, a a work in progress, not a finished product. Even I've been conditioned by the culture. (laughs) Marriage and romance done well and healthy is a sanctifying process. Can I hear an amen from the married people? See, they're the ones you should be, what's marriage really like? Well, (laughs) maybe maybe God has given you the gift of singleness, my brother or sister. (laughs) That would be really cool. See, that's the pursuit of holiness done together. Tim Keller says this. The search for an ideal mate is a hopeless quest. Romance, sex, laughter, and fun are the byproducts of the process of sanctification and the pursuit of holiness. Remember, Jesus did not die because we are lovely, but to make us lovely. And that's what happens in marriage. And I would say in ways, finding friendship is even more important than finding romance, though the good friendship 
will ultimately lead, I think, to a fine romance. One of the greatest gifts God ever gave Jackie and me is that he kept us apart as friends for two years before he allowed us to have a romantic relationship. I always wondered why God had that other goofy guy dating Jackie for two years. That's why. It was so that we could become friends and develop this relationship. And out of our friendship grew this amazing romance. And I will tell you that I believe that, that true romance, done well, has three components to it, okay? It's back-to-back, -back, it's side-by-side, -side, and it's face-to-face. -face. And you need all three of these. If you, if you lack even one of these, you're in trouble. Back-to-back -back is the fact that you guys protect each other, you support each other, you're each other's advocates, you're each other's defenders, you're each other's champions. You are always going to be in the corner of your spouse. You are protecting them like two good Roman soldiers standing back to back. Side by side means that you are best friends, that you're stirred and excited by the same things, that you have affinity and commonality, and not in all things, but in enough things that you get to do things together in partnership, whether it's raising kids or, or going to cardinal football games or, or, or whatever that is, side by side, and then face to face, that's the intimate aspect, and that's both emotional and physical. The two will become one flesh. That comment in the Bible about the two becoming Coming one flesh is both physical and emotional. It's, it's the true romantic intimacy that happens. I would say that in our culture today, we don't place enough emphasis on this part, the side-by-side. C.S. Lewis writes this, the essence of friendship is the exclamation, you too? It's when I sit down with somebody new for the first time and I find out they like hockey. You too? Boom, I'm connected. We can stand side by side and watch a hockey game and be happy. You see that? While erotic love can be understood as two people looking at one another, friendship can be depicted as two people standing side by side, looking at the same object and being stirred and entranced by it together. Things like Jesus. Things like the gospel. Things like family. Yeah, things like books and restaurants and music, even movies. Even Netflix, things like serving the community. Samson did not get this, and so he suffered. Take a lesson from Samson in this. Finally, back to the stories. So they got to go get this girl to marry her. They're going to they're go to her town. They're going to have the party there. On the way there, we have the famous story of a lion attacking Samson, and he kills the, the lion with his bare hands. And then later on, after the carcass of the lion has been laying there for a while, some bees take to the carcass of the lion, and then there for a while, Samson walks back by there. He's hungry. He sees that there's a bunch of honey in the carcass of the lion, so he goes and he gets some of the honey, and he eats some of the honey, he takes some of the honey to his parents, but he, but he, says, but he doesn't tell them that, that the honey came from a carcass. Remember that whole Nazarite thing? He's not supposed to interact with, with dead things. And then after all of this, we get to what is clearly the worst wedding celebration in the history of the world. He does marry this Philistine woman. We never get her name. But wedding receptions in those days lasted a week. And it was quite a party. The only time they stopped partying was maybe to take a nap, get a little sleep. During this seven-day reception... There was a wager made between Samson and 30 of, this, of his wife's brothers and cousins, her kinsmen, 30 of them. They came and they made a wager. Can you solve this ridder, riddle, Samson says. And they went away and they couldn't figure out the riddle. And they're going to lose this wager. So finally they go to his wife and they say, hey man, you're our, you're our kin. You've you got to tell us. You can't, you can't be loyal to your husband. You've got to tell us. And so she deceives Samson and she tells her 30 kinsmen, what the solution to the riddle is. So they come and they say, we have the solution. You owe us the spoils of the wager. So Samson finds out about all of this hanky-panky that's going on, and he gets a little upset. And so the end of the reception, he decides he's, he, he, he kills these 30 people. So that's kind of how the reception ended. Anything like this ever happened at your wedding reception? It's quite a party. So it's not over. Samson's father-in-law finds out about this, so he's mad at Samson. So in retribution against Samson, he takes his daughter back, says, you're now divorced, and gives, gives Samson's wife to Samson's best man. So now they're married. So Samson goes away. Then he decides at home, I really miss my wife. I want to go back and get her. So he goes back to get her, and he encounters his, his former father-in-law. And the father-in-law says, okay, I appreciate that, Samson. You want your wife back, but forget it. I'll tell you what, I'll give you 
her younger sister, she's better looking than she is. She's be- you should have her instead. Samson says, no, I don't want her younger sister. He gets mad again. He won't get his wife back. And so he decides, I'm going to show them Philistines. And so he goes and he gets 300 foxes and torches, ties them all together, and then sends them out into the grain fields that are about to be harvested by the Philistines, sends them out into the grain fields, burns all the Philistine grain fields to the ground. So now the the Philistines have been working all season long to get this grain ready to, to harvest, and now they're ready to harvest it. Now they have no grain to harvest. They were a little upset with Samson. So, of course, what they do is they go back and they kill Samson's father in law and Samson's ex wife by burning them, little irony there, and then they set out after Samson. And that's where we have that story that I read to you earlier from chapter 15 where the men of Judah bind up Samson and give Samson to the Philistines. But no worries, Samson's a strong guy, hasn't cut his hair yet, so he breaks out of his binds, and then he goes and he he finds, this is an amazing story, he finds a dead donkey, and he grabs the jawbone of the dead donkey, again, that Nazarite thing, grabs the the jawbone of the dead donkey, goes to the Philistines, and with this miraculous donkey weaponry, he kills a thousand Philistine warriors. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Years ago, I was in in seminary. It was the first class of quarter in Pasadena, 30 people in class. This may come as a shock to some of you, but occasionally in a class like college or, or graduate school, you'll have a student who is absolutely certain that they are smarter than everyone else in the class, and they are smarter than the professor in the class, and they are determined to make sure everyone in the class knows this. And they do this by interrupting and asking questions and making statements and usually kind of annoying everybody. So I'm in this class, and there's this guy in this class, and he's doing this. And it's a three-hour seminar, so we're an hour into it, and already, every time he opens his mouth, you can hear the rest of the classroom sighing and groaning. They're already done with him. And finally, at one point, he he pointedly challenges the, interrupts, and then challenges the professor. And the professor just looked at him, and he went, Oh, I've been slain by the jawbone of an ass. little biblical humor there for you, all right? That guy did not say another word the rest of the quarter, and we were so excited. <laughs> so very clever. So if you read your Bible, you can use biblical humor like that. Anyway, so now we get to chapter 16. So chapter 16 is the chapter of Samson and Delilah. But first, the first few verses, Samson goes and gets himself a prostitute. That holiness thing really isn't taken to Samson. So anyway, the Philistines hear that he's having a party at this prostitute's place of business. They wait outside to trap him, but he gives them the slip and then enters Delilah. So here we go. Chapter 16, starting in verse 4, the story of Samson and Delilah. And I'm sorry if I insert a little bit of drama into this. I can't help myself, okay? After this, after the prostitute situation, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, Seduce Samson and see where his great strength lies uh, and by what means we may overpower him so that we can bind him and humble him because they're done with Samson, you know, beating them all up. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So this is going to make Delilah a very rich woman. So Delilah says to Samson, Please tell me where, you get, where your great strength lies and how you might be bound. One could subdue you. Now, guys, if somebody, if a woman asks... Never mind, I don't need to point that out. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weakened like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men laying in ambush at an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah went to Samson and said, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and like every other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah came to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. 
And he said to her, if you weave seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak like it and like, be like any other man. So while he slept, you'd think Samson would figure this out by now, but while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and she wove them into the web and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled away the pin and the loom and the web. And she said to him, how can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. Love that line. His soul was vexed to death. And he told her all of his heart, and he said, a razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And that's exactly what happens, and of course the Philistines come and get him. They defeat him. And, and in the process, they gouge out his eyes and make him a slave. This is a tragic romantic story that's built on, I would say, and I don't think you need to be a biblical scholar to see this. Everybody says this. This story is built on selfishness and stupidity. Now, I would add this. It would probably be the most popular 21st century reality show we could ever watch if you could get this on thing on, on video. But they gouge out his eyes and they take him as a slave. Now, why would Samson... Obviously, you're looking at this, what's wrong with Samson? He can't be that dumb, okay? Delilah's not exactly the sharpest knife in the drawer either. We understand that. But still, it doesn't make sense. Uh, some scholars say that Samson got used to living on the edge and th that his power and his ability to win was all like a rush to him. It was a dopamine thing. Uh, another scholar, Tim Keller, writes this. It seems Samson's lust and desire for Delilah's approval and love drove him into a bad case of self-denial. And this was both a psychological and a theological problem. Samson's need for Delilah's affirmation blinded him to the very real danger he was in, and it kept him from being true to the covenants of God. But there's one other viewpoint. It comes from Ken Hughes, Kent Hughes and Barry Webb, two guys that I respect very much. Uh, they said this. They said, and, and again, this is supposition, but it's an educated guess. They said, uh, Samson never had a say in his life as a Nazarite. And at this point, he's tired of being a holy man, and he lusted after being just like any other man. He actually lusted after just being a commoner. And he had demonstrated his contempt for God and, and holiness by living a life in defiance to his vows. He drank all the time, he interacted with dead things all the time, and he let Delilah cut his hair. And, and though it's not necessarily part of the Nazarite vows, he also never treated women with respect or in a godly way. That was a problem as well. He was simply done with the burden of being a, quote, godly man. But then he found out what it's like to live under a curse instead. He's blind now. And that blindness plays at a level more than just physical blindness. Understand, it is also representative of his complete spiritual blindness in his life as well. And Samson also becomes a personal representation of the nation of Israel at this point. Israel would, was called by God to be holy, to be a separated people to God for the purpose of revealing him to the world, but Israel struggled with what God had called them to do. Israel was always lusting after the ways of other nations. They were lusting after the ways of cursed nations, wishing they could be like them, wanting to worship their gods, wanting to pursue their idols. Judges 2.16, they whored after the, uh, the, the idols of the Canaanites. And they wanted to have their way. You know, the grass is always greener. And we understand that it always seems better somewhere else than where we are. And then we get to that place and we go, eh, it's no better here, it's actually worse. And the reason is because if we would just pay attention to where we are and nurture this grass and feed this grass and water this grass, we're going to have the best grass there is. You don't even have to look at the other grass. The Israelites didn't get that and neither did Samson. And so the story wraps up with these two paragraphs. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice. And they said, our gods have given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw Samson, they praised their god. For they said, our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, in other words, they had had enough to drink, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. 
So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young men who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean, may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord, and he said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged in the Philistines, uh, on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Then the brothers of all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between uh, between Zorah and Eshtael in, in, the, in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel for 20 years. Now, in these three chapters, while Samson's alive, Samson did speak to God a couple of times. But when he did, every single time, he spoke to God out of anger and a sense of entitlement. He only spoke to God as if he were speaking down on God as if God were his servant. But here, we have the only time where Samson cries out to the Lord in humility and submission. And yes, part of it is that he wants to avenge the Philistines, but he is also doing it in repentance. This is the first time we see Samson repent of his ways and turn towards God's ways. This is the first time where Samson is not submitting to his will, but he is now submitting to the will of God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that the wise person is the one who submits to the will of God, and the foolish person is the one who submits to their own will. Samson has finally become a wise person. This is the first time he's repented. He's actually repenting, turning from his ways, and embracing God's ways. We need to understand that the morality of the Nazarite vow gave him absolutely no power, but when he turned to God, that is when he had power. When he repented, that's when he had power. I want to say this to the church, and especially to those people that are like my generation and older. Repentance will do way more to help the next generation embrace faith in Jesus than any morality that you and I can pass on. I think we live in a culture right now where my generation and, and generations that are above me in age keep feeling like that we need to pass some sort of a moral code on to the next generation because they're all messed up. By the way, we were just as messed up as them. The generations before us looked at us and said, they're never going to survive. You understand that. But I would tell you that a moral code is going to do them no good. Our morality is going to do no good for them. But what will do some good for them is if you and I are exemplars, if we practice true repentance, turning from ourselves and turning towards God, and not pounding them with this message, but showing them this message in grace and mercy, repentance will do way more for the next generation to embrace Jesus than any morality or any moral code that you and I can pass on. So... Back to the beginning, chapter 13, the birth story. This birth story reminds us a lot of the birth story of Jesus and of John the Baptist and of other Old Testament birth stories where somebody is used mightily and miraculously by God. Here's the first five verses that Chad read for us. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Man's not there. Manoah's not there. Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, behold, uh, therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for, that, for, for, um, for the child. Gosh, I'm, my eyes are so messed up. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Notice there it says he'll begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. He never completely delivers them. He's just going to start the process there. So Manoah wasn't there. The, the wife goes back and tells Manoah, hey, 
the, the angel of God appeared to me and said these things. So here's what happens. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman quickly ran and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I have said to the woman, let her be careful. Here's what's going on there. Manoah's coming and saying, You're calling us to do this thing. What's the result going to be? What is it going to look like when we're done? How is this going to happen? Tell us everything. We want to know everything. We're, we're on board, but we're not going to really be fully on board unless you tell us everything. And the angel of the Lord is saying, I've called you to be obedient and to prepare and to submit yourself to God's character. That's what I'm calling you to do. I'm giving you a son. From there, you're going to have to trust God. You're going to have to live a life of faith. And then 21 through 25, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife, then Manoah knew that it was the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. He's referencing an, a, a Pentateuch verse there. But his wife said to him, If the Lord meant to kill us, he, he would not have accepted our burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or have shown us these things, or now announced to us such things as these. She, she's the one who's got the wisdom. He's the one who's all freaked out, filled with anxiety. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him at Mehenna Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. So what's going on here? I already mentioned it. It's the same thing that you and I get tripped up by, and it's our big idea. God calls you and me to preparation and to obedience and to seek God's character. He does not call us to results because the results are up to him. He's the one who gives us the results. But just like Manoah, that's not our preference. That's not our preference. We all, we, we want God's table, uh, cards to all be on the table up front. We want him to show us his entire hand right up front. We want a code and a set of operating procedures that guarantees where we are, where we're going, what it's going to be like, that it's going to be easy, and that the results are going to be fabulous. That's what we want. And we want that complete picture before we even start. I go to, uh, our target is the target at Christown, Christown Mall. And, and you know, you, you park your car and you walk up, and you walk up to the front of Target, and just, just then, that little sensor sees you, and the door is open just as you're about to bang into them. You, you all know what I'm talking I'm not above anybody's head right here with the whole sensor discussion or anything, okay? All right, we get that, right? So how goofy would it be if I'm sitting um, in the left-hand turn lane on Bethany Home, getting ready to turn into the parking lot at Christown? I'm not even over by target yet. I'm sitting there on Bethany Home Road and I'm going, that door better be open for me right now. How goofy would that be? Or even more goofy, I'm at home at 16th Street and Bethany Home. I'm getting into my car. That door better be open right now. I better, I better, I better get on Target's website and see a picture of an open door before I even drive down there. Now we know how stupid that is, how goofy that is, but that's exactly what we tell God we want from him. And he's going, nope. You're going to walk this dog in faith. And, and as things are revealed to you, that's how I want it. Because this is about faith. It's about preparation. It's about my character and you seeking it. And it's about you being obedient to me. I'm not going to show you the results. In fact, guess what? You may never even see the results. You realize that part of the faith journey is that he calls us to something and we may never even see the results of what he's called us to do. It happens all the time. And sometimes we don't see the results for years and years and years and then just kind of out of left field, he drops that in. Oh, by the way, so-and-so is now a believer in Jesus Christ. You had a hand in that 25 years ago. You see, God calls us way more often to plant than to reap. Our problem is, is that we want to be reapers. We just want to be reapers. We hate the planting part. We just want to reap. We're all college students in a study group with a study project that's due. None of us want to do the work, but the day that project gets turned in, we want our name on it. That's the problem. God says you got to be the person who's faithfully walking the journey and doing the work. 
And you're just going to have to trust that I have the power and that I love you and I have purpose in the midst of this. We are called way more often to plant than to reap. But the good news is that ultimately the results have already been secured at the cross. You understand that when Jesus is hanging there on that tree, when he's hanging there on that cross, that is the perfect picture of finished results, done, accomplished. Just follow and prepare and obey. As I wrap this up, I want to read a verse that wasn't read to you earlier. It's chapter 14, verse 4. This little verse has slipped in here. This is so interesting. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord that Samson needed to go and get this Philistine woman to be his wife. They did not know it was from the Lord. For for God, he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. See, the people of God had become assimilated in, accepting of, and even advocates for Philistine culture and their gods, and there was no conflict or war with that. There was no difference between God's people and the rest of culture. There was no difference between Israel and the Philistines. They got along and they looked the same, but that broke God's heart. He said, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And so even though they didn't cry out, God intervenes, and he pulls Samson. Even though Samson was a mess, this is who he decides to use. In fact, we see here in verse 4 that God uses Samson's lust and disobedience to finally put a chasm between the Israelites and the Philistines, which is what God wanted. He used Samson's sin and wickedness to accomplish his purposes. And this calls out a really good question for you and me. Why doesn't God only use people who are good and who behave morally and who are on the same page with him? Wouldn't that make more sense? And the answer is yes, to us, that would make more sense. But that's because really, that puts power and control in our hands because we're dictating to God how he should operate. God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. It's the only reason anybody can be a pastor, by the way, because we're all crooked, all right? If God can only use good people doing good things who are consciously on God's good page, then he's no longer sovereign and in control. He's no longer God, which is kind of the way we like it, right? But that's not God. And in fact, if God didn't act sovereignly in the face of evil, no one would ever be saved because ultimately humans reject God and run away from him. That's what we do. We have free will, and our free will always leads us away from God. Even Samson's context shows us how true this is. If God doesn't act, we're lost. Jesus did not go to the cross because we are lovely. He went to the cross to make us lovely. And he went there to purchase our salvation, to make us righteous and justified. Otherwise, every one of us would be destined for condemnation. That's really good news. Let me pray, and we'll go into our time of response and reflection. Lord God, we thank you for this this truth of yours, and yet we struggle sometimes with the package that this truth comes in. The reality is, is that every package that your truth comes in has got some issues because you have chosen to work through people, sinful people who have been saved by your grace. What a really magnificent story that is. The story of your grace calling us to be ambassadors of your good news. God, help us with that. Pray you'd bless our time together. Pray you'd bless our lives, that we would live under blessing and not curse, and that you would be glorified, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.